Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss market events while quaffing some beers. Now, as it is our 30th episode, we thought we would do something slightly different from uh, our past 29 episodes. And we have this time, for the first time, we've invited on a guest. So I'm joined as of by Sam Blockering, but today we do have Kit Winder as well, who is a colleague of ours and a friend, and he will be consuming some beers of his own. He has brought two other beers to the game, which, uh, which we won't have tried before, which will be very fun. But Kit, uh, thank you very much for joining us. And tell us, what are you drinking today? Hey, Buzz and Sam. Thanks for having me. Hugely honoured to be the first guest. Obviously, this is a pretty big moment in my <laughs> career. Um, it's the um, highlight um, of your career. Let's, let's not make any mistakes about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> early highlight. But look, anyway, I feel like try and set the tone early by <laughs> really trying to piss Boaz off. Um, so what I've got here... <laughs> It's called the original small beer, and I went into my local craft beer oh. shop. Oh, and what this is? This is a, a, a small craft brewery between Bermondsey and Old Kent Road, Bars. Um and it's entirely focused around the concept of sustainability, and uh, and so all these things in terms of the way it uses water and heat, the way it uses, um, you know, recycled uh, everything to go to its sacks, you know, all the leftover grain that comes out of its distillers goes as, you know, cow farms, which then helps them use less water. Um, and, you know, it, all the plant is run by, I think it's solar, wind and hydropower. Um, so my beer that I'm drinking has had the lowest environmental impact of any beer potentially ever discussed on this. On this podcast. Is it, uh, judging by what I think I just saw on camera, can you, can you run us by the ABV on that as well? Because it also may be the lowest ABV I've ever seen on a beer as well. You're right. This is a 2.1% <laughs> ABV. It's stubby. Um, little, I almost feel like kicking him straight off the podcast, Boaz. And, uh, <laughs> all I would say is I knew this was coming. And so the second beer <laughs> does counteract so that I come out at an even 5% on average. It'd want to, it'd want to off of a 2.1, which I I think I I must have subconsciously counteracted it because the first one I'm drinking, which is called Octane Overlord uh, by the the Demosilithul Brewery, beer engineers, it's not even a brewery, they call themselves beer engineers from Alkmaar in the Netherlands is a Russian imperial stout that is 12%. Good Lord. (laughs) You're really, you're really going hard, Dan. I've yeah, gone hard. The, the opposite. Straight yeah, off the bat, the man. Yeah, it's mm. like I'm literally. Oh, wow. It's like I've got a glass of Coke. That's how. That's how dense and dark this sucker is. But I, I tell you what. I, at first, I was like, "Oh, should I keep it to the end in case it really sucks?" And I was like, "You know what? No, start strong, go hard." Uh, and and I, I went with it for my first. And I'm not going to lie. Straight off the bat, this is this is actually pretty pretty damn good so let, let's just i'm just going to leave it at that and, and come back to it when we come back to our rating but uh yeah so far oh, so very good. good yeah yeah uh, i must say Kit, i i do commend your effort to uh, to irritate me as much as possible with, with the small beer you know funnily enough i've actually had that uh, on a few occasions when i was living in london uh you know the very cosmopolitan whole foods love selling that stuff I, and no. but i didn't actually know that uh i didn't know that the whole thing was about sustainability i, I just thought it was called small beer because the abv is absolutely <laughs> tiny but uh, now that i know that they're all about sustainability i'm never gonna drink it again so thank you for, for enlightening me on that kit but as uh, as of course we are uh, 
you know, we've, we've got our beers to start with. The one I'm on uh, to begin with today is uh, Day Shift by Fierce Brewery, which is a, uh, a local Scottish brewery. They're uh, pretty, pretty um, common around this, this area in Aberdeen. I've never had it before. But Day Shift, it's a hazy IPA, 5% mm. ABV, uh, kind of does what it says on the tin. I've not had it before, though. And it, it tastes pretty good so far. Uh, but, you know, here we are. We've got, uh, we've, you know, myself and Sam, we, did, we discuss the markets very often, very frequently in this podcast, intermixed with plenty of beer consumption. But Kit, uh, you know, what have you been looking at this week in terms of the, uh, the, the movements we've seen, in terms of the investment themes we've seen? What is it that you're looking at? God, um, well, I, my focus has been sort of quite entirely um, taken up by uh, a very new, exciting, interesting project of work that I think you both know about and that I'm annoyingly not allowed to talk about. Um, but <laughs> no plugs, no plugs. <laughs> um <laughs> certainly for me the big theme of the week um has been talking around sort of the broader transition towards sustainability so not only looking at energy um but looking at maybe examples like the small brewery um different ways in which different businesses are, are trying to turn their operations around and make them sustainable um and that's something we haven't seen much of uh and so just looking more at things like, for example, how we use water, how we're trying to tackle pollution, um, you know, how maybe the mining sector, um, which is something I know we, we've spoken about, but how, you know, gold and precious metals mining, you know, which is a heavy user of cyanide or something like that, um, how different companies are trying to tackle that problem. Um, and it seems as though uh, there is a sort of overpowering, inevitable trend in that direction. Um, and that COVID has maybe accelerated it somewhat. So that's something that we've definitely been looking at. When when you talk about that, and you talk about the sort, you feel it's inevitable that things go in that direction. Is that something you think is being, um, you know, it's, it's inevitably headed that way because of government policy, or do you think that companies are simply going to be forced to do that because of you know uh, boycotts, you know, social movements? Or do you think that this is just an inevitability from uh, the market maturing and uh, companies taking on this sort of public stakeholder role, which we've heard so much about over the last couple of years? Well done, Boaz. You've got all three in one. Um, the way I describe it is that there is unprecedented social, political and financial will behind this movement. Um, I, you know, in my own personal experience, I remember back being at school, the talk was around you know, the classic climate change, early year six geography stuff that we did, maybe reducing some plastic. And back then it was all reuse, recycle, and that was all anyone had to do to save the planet. Um, but, you know, this is 15 years later now. Everything has moved along. So a lot of people look at this as a flash in a pan. You know, they look at ESG in particular for that. Um, whereas I would say that now the, the force behind those movements, as you say, from politics, society, and, and the financial world, um, is is pretty unstoppable at this stage. What do, what do you make of the idea? Well, it's not really an idea. It's, I've seen I've seen some stuff recently that was saying that in 2019 that 94 percent of the world's energy still came from burning coal, oil, gas, wood, and biofuels. I mean, I I I do believe that there is a change happening, but. I, the thing that I struggle with that we've talked about before, Kit, is the, the time periods at which this is going to happen as to whether it's, it may be even something that extends past our lifetime, probably, I would think. But I, I wonder if it's coming as fast as the market thinks it's coming. 
when you look at places like India and China, and they just have absolute nothing but necessity to for cheap energy, and that the cheap energy really comes from from coal and oil and gas and natural gas as well, uh, being I think something that maybe has fallen to the wayside a little bit. But anyway, I mean, I. Part of me, you know, you know, is it is it a Western world kind of, you know, I use that sort of inverted commas, Western world, developed world, whatever you want to think, however you want to put it. Is it is it that there's two kind of ways that the world's rolling this out, and that you know, places like the UK and the US and you know these sort of richer countries are move, trying to move this faster because they can, and then that the rest of the world, which is a significant part of the population, isn't because they still, you know, a lot of places don't even have access to proper electricity. I mean, is it a, is it a two-speed thing or is this all-encompassing? I'd say, yeah, it's multi-speed. I mean, there's so many interesting points in there. I think you're, I, I know the article you're referring to because you liked it on Twitter and so luckily I get notified and I read it and it annoyed me. Um, <laughs> I thought it would annoy one. you, that one. Um, so for Mind example, you, uh, we'll come back to it in a second. There were a couple of things that I do want to, do want to talk about uh, in there uh, off the back of this, but, but, but continue. Sure, okay. Well, some of the things I point out is your point about um, renewables only doing 6% of world energy in, um, in 2019. Well, we've known for a long time that in 2020 that jumped to 10 um, and that's quite an extraordinary leap and is just representative of the progress. A lot of people talk about the S-curve of technology adoption and 5% is a crucial level at that stage. So once renewables, including nuclear and including hydro in that, um, cross that 5% threshold, we've started to see an acceleration. That's now happening with electric vehicles as well, uh, China especially, uh, and Europe. Uh, and some more stats for you. I think 67% of new electricity that was added to global production last year in 2020 um, 67% of that was solar and wind. And so someone like Mark Lewis, who heads up sustainable asset management uh, at BNP Paribas, he says the thing to focus on is the marginal rate of change. So how much of the new production is being taken up by renewables? And that number, I think in, in Germany, that's been 100% renewable since something like 2008, um, which was when it really clicked for him that the, the rate of change, which is what we as investors should be interested in, that marginal rate of change is what we should focus on, and it's all renewables. Um, the other thing is, of course, that saying fossil fuels makes it sound like they're all the same. They're not. I think coal is more expensive and produces twice as much carbon dioxide per megawatt of electricity than gas. And the UK, for example, I think has the best economic growth of any G7 country over the last 30 years and has also done the best at decarbonizing. decarbonizing. And um, the thing everyone knows about in the UK is the dash for gas. And the dash for mm. gas was about getting coal off our system. And as a result, we have cut coal down from about 40% of national electricity to about two. And we went two and a half months last year um, during lockdown when we didn't use any coal at all. That was the first time since 1882 when we built the first coal viaduct in Hoban. Um, and it's sort of an incredible thing. I think people are surprised to hear that 45% of our energy last year came from things like solar, wind and nuclear. And yes, gas plays a large part too, but transitioning from coal to gas is a massive massive part of the decarbonization story and it's not yeah. that disruptive as as you say so when you talk about the two-step race i think coal to gas switching is going to be a huge huge thing for developing nations so it's maybe they view it as easier or cheaper or more straightforward whatever and there are arguments there maybe around land use maybe around um you know the building and operating and the economics around solar and wind in certain places um 
but yeah, cold gas switching is a huge part. And then for the for the two part race that you described, where developed and developing and going along on, at different speeds, I think the thing there is just for a lot of places, um, you're right um, that fossil fuels are still required, and that in fact, what I would attack here is not necessarily the renewables movement, but it's the divestment movement. Um, so the divestment campaign is trying to get people to stop drilling for new oil or trying to stop coal from happening or stop gas from happening. And it's actually a really short-sighted view because, as you say, developing nations, they do need gas. And net zero doesn't mean absolutely zero. It means net zero. And it means you can have a mix of things and we will need gas and we will need oil as well. Um, and the important thing is that if the divestment movement gets its way, there's no oil being pulled out of the ground. And suddenly these developing nations that want to grow, they want to achieve our our uh, standards of living that we have in the West, where we use 30 or 50 times as much oil per person as they do, we're denying that to them with, with the divestment movements. So that's one where it's ironically, it's not the renewables uh, side of things that I disagree with, it's the people who are trying to stop oil from, from being dug out of the ground. Yeah, I find that, that quite an interesting, um, kind of interesting dichotomy there. So when you're talking about uh, the manner in which these uh, these technologies are adopted and you know phasing out fossil fuels and managing to get to a level where you know that you could get in a developing world a dash for gas etc one thing that i find um well, well one thing that sort of strikes me is something that never really gets addressed with this uh, and just broadly in, ter in terms of people railing against fossil fuels <clears throat> is that just how little uh, china gets mentioned at all uh, and it always feels to me that this is a gigantic panda, as it were, in the room that is never really <laughs> mentioned. Um, so, and talking about divestment, I mean, if you're talking about divestment from China, I mean, that would be, a, that would be considered in a lot of circles a, a massive no-go because China is seen as this pioneer where they're going to be giving everyone electric vehicles and things like that. And they're, they, you know, they're leading the way with all the state investment in renewable infrastructure and things like that. But all that aside, uh, you know, I think it was in 2017 was the last stats that I, I'd seen where China had just from their coal emissions alone, just coal, they um, there were more CO2 emissions from China from coal than Latin America, Africa, and Europe combined for all of their emissions. Right, all of their emissions. Um, now that's that seems like a kind of a big. That should be kind of a big deal to a lot of people, especially on the renewable side, especially on the climate change side, you know, the, the Greta Thunberg side. You know, I thought this, this might be something that people would want to bring up, but they never do, which always makes it feel like there is a, a lot of political will about this going in a certain direction and not rubbing China the wrong way. So when it comes to, uh, you know, whether or not uh, coal, for example, which you've uh, rightfully described as a very dirty fuel, um, and getting rid of it and going on to gas. I mean, how do you think China is going to, do you think China is going to be pushed in that direction? Do you think they're going to voluntarily go in that direction? What way do you think that's going to turn out? Yeah, so it's a really good point and really interesting. And I have to say that I don't, I don't really have a good, that good of an answer. I've got a few points maybe, but um, I think certainly one of the challenges is how opaque China is, right? So you know a lot more about it than I do, Berns. You understand how things work over there a lot better than I do. An understanding of, you know, how the energy transition is going, um, 
actually actually doesn't give me that great of an insight into how China is running things. So, if, you know, a few things to know is China is the biggest at everything. So you're right. A lot of people point to the amount of coal plants that China is building. Um, and it's, you know, 330 currently are being built or something. Um, but they're also the world's largest investor in clean energy and have been. So, so they get a free pass, right? Um, yeah, but it's also what they're doing is they're building energy of all kinds, right? Um, because currently they use something like, you know, one barrel of oil per person per year equivalent. Um, in America, it's 12. So the thing to look at, I would say, is per capita stats, where America is so far and away the leader. Um, so I think for carbon emissions, China is first in absolute terms, but 70th in per capita terms. So you always have to slightly keep that in mind um when you're thinking about china because it's just the biggest at everything um and the other slight one is you're you know you're right china recently committed to net zero by 2060 but they have said their emissions are going to grow until 2030 um and we don't really trust much of what they say so xi jinping will be thinking 2060 i'll be gone who cares um and you know is is as as i say you'll know this better than me but I, I can't particularly imagine him prioritizing this over some of his other current concerns. Um, no. Yeah, I don't have a particularly good answer for you other than that. But I, I also right get the sorry. I was just. I also get the feeling that China are hedging. Just they just they just hedging their bets because they actively pretty much piss off anyone they feel like at any given time. So something like coal. While yes, they're developing. Um, obviously a lot of coal plants they're obviously developing a lot of renewable and they're also one of the biggest developers of nuclear technology as well um i think i think you're right i think that it's it's that idea of just divestment that they're covering all their bases because i saw that um like for instance with australia like the australian exports of coal to china is huge but with recent um political tensions between the two china basically switched that off and I think late last year, basically, I think it was around, well, it was over half uh, of half of the previous um, rate. I, I think, uh, where was it? I'd seen uh, September, September was like 5.87 million tonnes of coal that Australia exported to China. And then with the ongoing political tensions, uh, that dropped to 2.25 million. So 62% cut uh in basically the space of a month which is mental to think that but china I, I think uses that as a as a bargaining tool really as a, as, a, as an exercise of power because they're you know a country like australia is so dominant uh so so based and so reliant on the chinese market uh well, not not the sole market the us is, is a bigger market to australia but china is such an important market particularly for natural resources uh, that they use, they can use that as a bargaining tool, so that China can say, "Okay, we'll switch off coal, but we, but not to not to cut off their nose to spite their face." So they can use it, and that I, I feel that the reason that they're developing renewable uh, energy isn't actually uh, for the good of the world. I don't think they give a shit about the good of the world or Greta Thunberg or anybody for that matter. It's really just a political bargaining tool when it comes to managing their own economy and, and continuing to push out their um their regime i suppose it's a really yeah. good no no carry on kit 
Well, I just, yeah, just two things spring out there. I think the first one is, you know, while, while I'm here on the, the boring topic of renewables banging on again, um, if you look at solar and the way that that industry played out, Germany got the ball rolling with huge subsidies um, in their NLG vendor back in sort of 2005, 2008. Um, and then the European solar industry was absolutely decimated because China took on production. They undercut everyone. They, they advanced it so aggressively. Um, and they've now done the same thing with batteries. And the entire objective, as you say, Sam, was not to save the world. It was to claim the industry. They wanted to supply the global fight against climate change. And they are now doing it. And so, you know, one, one thing that we've tried to look at is, you know, companies in that value chain that are outside China. So if the US-China um, divide widens, maybe those companies will benefit. And, and rare earths is, it, rare earth metals is another example of a crystal. Well, hasn't rare earths just um, boomed in like the last month? Yeah. Um, and it had a, it's had a couple of, it's a sort of flat line for nine months and then jump. Kind of oh, rare, rare earth booms like every 10 years. There's just like a, a, a melt up of rare earth stocks and opportunities. I remember the first time it happened, but this is, this was well before I was in, uh, financial publishing or anything like that. And, um, holy crap. It was, it was mental, you know, companies like Linus, um, was like Linus in it on the ASX is like the poster child of rare earths um, mm -hmm. for anybody that, that invests in, in the Aussie market. I remember the first rare earths boom that came that had to be what? Oh, Jesus. I can't even remember how long ago it was. Had to be like a decade ago. Um, back when they were just starting to talk about um, even developing a plant, let alone the, the stuff in Malaysia and, and China. I think it was when China, I think the first time China cut, um, cut production or something, a rare earth, or I can't remember. But rare earth is one of those, one of those markets that I I find absolutely friggin' fascinating because the, the story doesn't really change, but it seems to be really rooted in what uh, political policy changes from from some of the bigger countries and and, and nations that produce and export them. Yeah, big time. I think, yeah, rare earths is a really funny one because you get with rare earths, you like we think of coal as a really bad, really bad for the environment um, sort of industry. But rare earths themselves are incredibly taxing to on the environment to extract due to the huge amount of chemicals you use. Because, you know, there's, there's, as the saying goes, rare earths aren't rare. They, uh, you know, they're everywhere. But it they're in our backyard. Yeah, they're, they're, they're here in the UK, they're everywhere. Um, but it's just incredibly, you, the huge amount of chemicals and the, the very, you know, just very intensive extraction process um, is just really bad for the environment. I mean, so North Korea yeah. wanted to be the uh, Saudi Arabia of rare earths. Uh, I think that was in the 80s, or that was, that was their claim, what they wanted to be. And, you know, they could, they can be, they are still a massive producer of rare earths, I understand. Uh, but, you know, there's no environmental regulations there. So uh, Lord knows the kind of, um, you know, the fallout that, that has on the local populations there when it comes to things like birth defects and early life expectancy from all of the, you know, incredibly toxic processes that are used to get those rare earths out of the ground. Um, but you find this thing with rare earths where because it's a strategic strategically important uh industry that you know people get a uh, you know the the countries that need them you know who have who have weapon systems that require them uh you know they need to be able to give some kind of free pass effectively to uh to their own industries that could can extract this on their own soil 
Uh, and so the likes of Linus, for example, I'm sure they're, they're following some very strict environmental sort of protection. But when it comes to uh, you know, needing to get rare earth production online as fast as possible, and it takes years, uh, you'll find that you know, you know, red tape is cut and environmental protections are violated in order to get it there because it's, it's something that where saving the planet comes second and uh, getting you know, neodymium out of the ground because we need them in, a, in the magnets in the, the magnets in the, in the, it's all about the magnets powers <laughs> it's all about the guidance systems on the on the on the missiles sam that's what we the do. magnets we've you know, got to supply the magnets <laughs> yeah well birds you'll notice with linus i think that you know they they've been through all this trouble with their base in malaysia right you know fighting with their environmental action minister desperate yep. regulations and they're sort of basically on probation there um but um, but I think America is helping them to open a plant in the States. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. No, this yeah, time because, last year, Xi Jinping yes. visited a rare earths, um, you know, refinery in China just as the trade tensions are really getting heated up and everyone got super scared that they were going to cut off supply because they have 90% of global refinery. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Um, so, yeah, we're just... Just saying, well, that, that's that's the kind of situation I'm referring to. So, with Linus, want it, they want the Americans want Linus to open up a open up that plant in the states, and it'll be done in an area, and it'll be done in such a way that uh, you know, for a private enterprise with no military affiliation, I I would very much doubt that that plant wouldn't be able to exist by itself. But because it has a strategic value to the military. And, you know, the, the, they've got an entire department on uh, strategic and critical materials, right? Um, they'll get some kind of permit to be able to, you know, extract rare earths while cutting a load of red tape in order to do it. Because it's thought of as a, you know, a really, uh, it's very much important to prevent a, um, you know, the, the Chinese embargoing uh, rare earths. Sam, when you're talking about that boom in 2011, I'm guessing that was yeah, uh, the that same was that was the Senkaku Islands dispute, right? That was where the Chinese embargoed rare earths to Japan because uh, I think the Japanese yeah. declared. Yeah, that I, all I be... remember was that. Uh, so it was a it was a handful of of, of uh, rare earth stocks on the ASX, and they like they mooned so hard. It was like twenty x and thirty x kind of returns in the space of like a year and a bit. Uh, it's sort of, it's sort of, so everything basically crashed out the arse end of 2008. And then there was sort of a bit of a recovery and then rare earths. Yeah. 2011 uh, just went, or 2010 it was that they just went bonkers. So like Linus, for example, like if you look at the five year chart on Linus uh, and go back to sort of uh, what are we looking at? Like October, 2016 Linus is about 10 X from where they were in, um, uh, in 2016, in sort of October 2016, they're still they're still like five x away from their all time high, which was around 2011, early 2011, like 25 bucks or something like that, which is crazy to think of that they can, you know, like I said, rare earths. I, I I can see on their all time chart like two, three. This is probably the fourth distinct, um, you know, market boom that they've gone through. And there'll be there'll be loads more like that uh, as well. 
Yeah, it is a it is a quite fascinating topic, rare earths. But before we carry on with it, we should give a, a decent rating to our uh, our first beer of the BBB podcast. And of course, with Kit here, he can give oh, yes. the give the small beer one of his uh, you know the the rating that it deserves. Hopefully, uh, well, I imagine I won't agree with it, but you know it, it's all right. Uh, I think Kit, I just realised. Did did we even explain okay. the rating system to Kit? Yeah, Kit, no. are you are you familiar with our rating system? Well, I, I'm I'm familiar-ish in terms of the triple A, triple B, plus minus, but um, I'm not quite <laughs> sure what's around you doing it. We we well, could we yeah. could be here for another half an hour just describing the system. <laughs> well, yeah, just think of it. Triple B is the best. Double B is almost as good. Single B is good. Single A is it's all right. Double A is not good, and triple A is suitable only as toilet cleaner. And and so and you're not allowed B. to give a triple B rating. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, a small bit. So it's a it's a plain lager. I'm I'm not usually a huge fan of lagers, um, but I have to say one of their cool things is um, that while it is a lower ABV, as, as previously described and kicked off about, um, they focus on sort of they have twice as many ingredients per milliliter or whatever. So I would say for a lager, I was actually surprised. I liked it. Um, I would call it a single B. Um, oh, no. We can't get carried away with a lager, um, but it was nice. I enjoyed it, and it's, an, an, it's a nice first beer, if you know what I mean. Oh, very good, very good, Sam. What? Uh, how would you rate this twelve percent octane overlord? I mean, I tell yeah. you what, the Dutch mate—they've come through with the goods. I um, maybe I'm a little biased because there's a bit of there's a bit of Dutch heritage there, but I usually don't like stout. Or for me to drink stout, it's got to be something pretty decent. And I, I'm not sure I've ever had a Russian imperial stout from a Dutch brewery. So this is breaking all kinds of new ground for me. And also the label on this sucker, it's like a 90s video game. It's, it's rad. Um, and at 12%, I mean, holy crap. That was really, really good. Uh, and, and I can't... I, I, I can't emphasize actually how good that was <laughs> to be honest with you at 12% um, to, for a stout. It's, it wasn't heavy. It, it doesn't like sit in the gut like some stouts do. It, it was, it was weirdly almost refreshing uh, drinking it, which is just, it's, it's blown my mind in several ways. And I was not expecting that at all. I was almost, almost dreading drinking that beer. Um, but that was, that was, good man that's uh that's that's done something to me that i wasn't expecting i'm giving this the double b plus rating oh my yeah i this is is, this has surprised me in several ways well i must say i mean that is that's quite quite a compliment though sam you have you have given some you've gotten some good beers in recent in recent episodes that that double b has been thrown around a few times if memory serves yeah um by the way with that what was it octane overlord because that sounds quite familiar to me for a beer i had a long time ago does that have an image of someone who looks like galactus the comic book character on the front yes yes it yes does. Oh, oh that's great work that I... is that that's talk there now that's knowing your beers people <laughs> i had that beer i'm incredibly impressed i couldn't dream of such knowledge yeah me too that's blown me away <laughs> that's um 
I had that, I think, in 2019, you know, way back before lockdown. Uh, I think my girlfriend got it for me. Uh, I don't remember. I didn't remember how it was 12% ABV, though. Uh, and I don't remember how it tasted, which probably speaks something to the uh, to the ABV content. But uh, yeah, if well, I, I tell you what, if I had like if I had three of these, I would be sideways. <laughs> well, I'm just looking forward to what you come out with in 20 minutes time. I also just like the way Bo said way 2019 way, way back lockdown, <laughs> a decade. i remember my first back, back in the good old days in 2019 <laughs> um it does feel forever away it to does me feel like that. i don't know about you but this oh does that that the heady days of 2019 yeah um what anyway, i would rating for mine day shift mm, what to go back to 2019 no i'd take it over what we're sitting through now yeah that's true that's true uh before we carry on with the next one i'll give give my review for day shift which is uh, by fierce hazy ipa five percent abv it's got a fellow wearing a suit except his head is a i think it's not a condor it's i think it's some kind of hawk um <laughs> yeah by fierce brewery five percent and it's actually pretty good it's pretty good i've I would give it, I think, I think of all the, I've had a lot of bad beers in, in these podcasts recently. And I think this is actually <laughs> yeah. one that kind of breaks away. I think but you I'll have, but you have been in Sweden as well, a, don't forget. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They weren't all bad in Sweden, but uh, no, it was, yeah, I, I'll give it a B. I think that's good. All right. Now to follow on with Day Shift, my last beer, I have gone with Night Shift, which is also oh! my first brewery. <laughs> Indeed, instead of uh, instead of a Boaz, you're a genius. <laughs> Say again, you're a genius, Boaz. The the way you just played into that was phenomenal. Oh, thank you, thank you. It's uh, you know I work very hard at coming up with these very smooth transitions, but you know <laughs> I'm a big fan of a transition, Boaz. You know that. So well done. <laughs> anyway, uh, so this is a black IPA rather than a hazy IPA, and it's six point five percent. Uh, allegedly, this is a small batch edition, number 45. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm always interested by black IPAs because they taste pretty, pretty unique. Uh, I always want, well, when I was younger, I used to wonder what black IPA really meant. How, is it, how can you get a black pale ale? Uh, but of course, it's to do with the malts, I believe, rather than, yeah. rather than hops. But what are you guys drinking anyway? Uh, Kit, you first. What's this uh, very strong IPA to make up for... Uh, to make up for the <laughs> the last beer. Basically water he was drinking before. Yeah, yeah well, anyway, um, I'm incredibly hydrated <laughs> after round one. And um, to balance it out, I have gone with the, uh, the Münchner Munich uh, Augustiner Boy um, Maximator. Now, when I was 17, I went and oh, lived in Munich. So the first beers I ever, I ever got to drink were, um, they came in these plastic crates, 12 glass bottles all half a litre each and it was just a plain Augustina which would be you know served in every Hofboy house in Munich um, and I went when I went to when I went hunting down sustainable lager I happened across this <laughs> uh, incredible version you can't see it, but the label did you, did you is, take an e-scooter there on the way as well <laughs> I walked it's the most climate friendly way um, <laughs> But no, so it has a picture of someone who looks like the Pope, who I guess is the Maximator, which is the name of this beer. And instead of the usual color combo, we've got green and purple, uh, and it's a seven and a half percent equivalent. So it's essentially like the first beer I ever, I ever enjoyed, 
um, has been pimped out and uh, roided up. And it's an incredibly sort of deep rust red uh, version. And I am enjoying my first couple of sips immensely, is all I would say. Well, Sam, what were you on? What's your second? If you've started with a 12 percenter, I wonder how you could top that. Well, I've gone for something completely different. And so this, uh, this one's called Orange Rainbow, which is a blood orange DDH IPA at 6.5%. So uh, I've taken it, I've just taken it back, back a notch, just dialed things like back down. Yeah, just down to a just to a lazy six and a half percent. And this is from the Tanker Brewery, and I'm going full Euro now. Uh, I've gone from uh, Alkmaar in the Netherlands to uh, Yuri in Estonia, the Tanker Brewery from Estonia, uh, and it's yeah, it does what it says on the tin. It's a blood orange DDH IPA. Looking forward to this because uh, I think we talked about this last week, didn't we, Boaz? Where we mentioned that we'd like a bit of the old citrus thrown in there with a uh, bit of blood orange thrown into the beer mix mm, yeah nice and citrusy uh i we ought to say kit with the uh, with the name maximator uh it does make me wonder uh well it does, it does bring to mind the the bitcoin maximalist ethos Ooh. now uh with uh, bitcoin being uh you know re- there's recently been all manner of fud thrown at it uh, there was this incredible moment yesterday where there were these allegations of a double spend taking place <gasps> on, the, on no. the Bitcoin blockchain, which was uh, complete nonsense, but it got an awful lot of traffic. And it's coincided with the price going down. So everyone thought, oh, Bitcoin's been hacked. It's all it's going dead. down, guys. It's yeah. Um, but Kit, you, had, you had some conversations uh, with, uh, indeed, I believe a couple of Bitcoin maximalists uh, early last year, way before the massive rally that we had. Uh, what, what's been your observations of this? I mean, uh, I, I don't believe you to be a Bitcoin maximalist, but I would be very interested to hear your, uh, your, your comments on it. Yeah, as, as a relative newcomer to this space, I think you, you, you self-proclaimed as well, kid. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your take on the last few days as well. Yeah, self-proclaimed novice. Um, it's hard to argue <laughs> with that. Yeah, I mean, my story is pretty classic. It's sort of, you know, 50 quid in Litecoin in 2017 because it was the cheapest uh, on Coinbase and, <laughs> you know, bubble, bus, whatever. Um, but so all the way out, I guess the, the curious part of myself um, held on, um, which was enough that when the opportunity came around, as you say, to talk to all these incredible people last summer, I took it. And that was a, a phenomenal learning experience for me. And last year was great. Um, it was one of the real good things that came out of it. Um, and so I've gone from being a complete novice to a sort of partially educated novice. Um, so I don't know how many true insights I could, I could offer, really. In the last few days, my only insight has been that I've not been panicking. I've been pretty calm and I'm much more uh, nice. sort of long-term than I would have been. I think that probably counts my um, progress as an investor from back in 2017 when I was still at university. Um, but it's just... It's, it's not bothered me in the same way. I guess I read both of your works. So something like someone saying there's been double spend, I hadn't heard that, but that wouldn't bother me because I know it's not possible. Um, and yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm a calmer, longer term thinker. I'm not too worried by um, the volatility, volatility we've seen in the last few days. If anything, probably the same as you, Baz, somewhat reassuring that, you know, it didn't just carry on getting more and more parabolic. Um, but either way, if you're thinking further down the line it's, it's a bit more relaxing 
Mm. Yeah, I must say, I have been very relieved to see uh, a pullback in the price. You know, it's very, you know, see, see Bitcoin just go up by $1,000 every day. It just makes you think that, you know, this is completely un- unsustainable. Uh, you know, I have no problem with a $40,000 Bitcoin price, but if it gets there in six weeks, then it's like, you know, uh, it's just be, you know, it is, it is just simply, simply too extreme for me to feel, to feel comfortable with. And maybe you're not meant to feel comfortable, uh, maybe, you know, doing this, putting money into things like that are that volatile uh, is, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't feel comfortable doing that kind of thing, but there's, when a great quote, price, there? hmm. there's a great quote, which is just every great investment starts in discomfort. Um, ah. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, it, it must be true because you can't buy low without buying in discomfort yeah though i would say it was discomforting to see i mean if you'd bought bitcoin uh you know just at the beginning of last year for example uh and then just saw or, or you bought it in march as if for, for anyone who was you know a true believer uh and you know there was that guy who got um put a one of the news headlines about the uh, stimulus package uh, the anti-woo-flu stimulus package into one of the blocks uh, and in March. So, you know, definitely somebody who was a, a true believer and was buying that dip. Um, you know, if you'd bought it then, uh, you know, it would have been very discomforting. But I would, I would sort of parry that by saying it made me uncomfortable to see uh, the price go up as much as it had, even if it benefits me personally. Uh, you know, it would be like, you know, waking up in the morning to find that somebody is ramming cocaine up your nostrils, right? This is not, this is not what I want. Right. I maybe this is great personally to see you know, the price go up so much, but this is not actually what I want. So, you know, the, I, I'm personally uh, very glad to see the, the price going down and for it to be uh, a higher price. Sure. But not not something so parabolic. I mean, would you would you uh, echo that, Sam, or are you fine with that kind of ridiculous sort of uh, surge? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with surges and, and <clears throat> drop offs and pitfalls and all those sorts of things. My, my views always just stack sats. Um, that's, that's my own personal take on it is just to continue to stack sats where you can. March was wicked. Just meant great chance to start topping up the BTC holdings. Um, it's, <laughs> I always come back. So I, we, I've spoken about this before and I'll keep going on and on and on and on and on and on and on about it, is that one of the traps in all of this with Bitcoin and crypto and, and, and that sort of thing is the continuous uh, obsession with fiat money conversion prices. Because what that inherently indicates is that if you're only ever conscious of what your Bitcoin is worth in fiat money, is that you intend to cash back to that fiat money at some point in time. If you don't ever intend to actually use that Bitcoin in a conversion back to something like US dollars or pounds, then the price is irrelevant. All that matters is the relative purchasing power of goods and services of your Bitcoin in the future for when people start to price things in Bitcoin instead of fiat money. And I, I get that that's not exactly an overnight kind of thing. And at the same time, somewhat contradictory, somewhat contradictive of myself is that at some point, you know, it will get to a value where people should really start to ensure that they do convert it back to fiat money to pay off things like, you know, dead debt, like any sorts of loans they might have or mortgages, all those sorts of things to 
effectively um, decouple themselves from the traditional financial system and then not have to owe any money back to the traditional financial system. And then what they can, what you can do going forward then is to really uh, embrace the fact that, and, and, and my view is that long-term, which we'll, we'll see play out in our lifetime. And then I think extend beyond that is that you will find that cryptocurrencies, whether it be Bitcoin or something else, um, have a universal role in trade and finance, that that's how supply chains are based. So I've always said that when, when an entire supply chain can be valued in Bitcoin and not have to be relative to fiat money, then there is no point in, in bringing it back to, you know, what's the price of Bitcoin. It's, it's more about how much, um, you know, how much uh, uh, seed does Bitcoin buy for the farmer which then how much does the farmer charge in Bitcoin for the crops that he grows? How much does the uh, tractor manufacturer charge in Bitcoin for the tractor that he sells the farmer to, to um, cultivate those crops uh, and so on and so on and so on. And that's the end game that I think will play out. Not, as I said, I, that's not, that's not something that happens in the space of a decade or two. That's something that is probably, you know, a century or two to wind out. But I think people with with you know genuine uh, ideas around wealth creation and generational wealth creation uh, should really be looking at it in that in that aspect. And that uh, I've always I've always said that that you should have allocations of of, of crypto, something like Bitcoin uh, and some of the others, to yourself and to your immediate needs and to ensuring that you can decouple from the financial system, and then looking bigger picture so that your kids and your kids' kids and generations down the track, you know, might have some of this tucked away when, when potentially there is an entire global financial system that the core currency uh, is a cryptocurrency. You know, when you, you saying that, Sam, it reminds me of uh, not, not in quite, you know, exactly the same way, but it reminds me of a few years ago, I think it was in, I think it would have been in 2018, actually, when this happened. Uh, there was an interview uh, done with Mark Cuban, you know, the, uh, the dot-com investor who's since become uh, massively, yeah. uh, massively wealthy, uh, you know, on, the, on Shark Tank. He's a, he's a celebrity. He owns, what, a basketball team. Dallas Mavericks, yeah. And he's often, yeah. And he's often asked for comment uh, and things like that. But yeah, I remember him being asked about Bitcoin. And that would have been after the peak in 2017. Uh, and he said uh, that Bitcoin, each because he viewed Bitcoin and Bitcoins, plural, as uh, like collectible pieces of art, because each Bitcoin is completely different in you know in terms of what it, it in terms of its appearance, right? Each one is not the same to each other. Different public address, different private address, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And on the blockchain, they are they are themselves very independent of each other. So we exchange them as a you know as though it's the same thing but each one is different and that's how you can track where they all go and things like that and his description of it like a piece of art each one being a piece of art i you know i did completely disagreed with because that's not what bitcoin's really about i mean it wasn't there these things were not created as collectibles they were not created as uh, something you hang on your wall they were you know the idea is that this becomes an asset that is used to exchange stuff yeah. but then Hearing you say that makes me wonder if whether or not that attitude is actually what you would want from somebody who is a Bitcoin investor, right? So if you are a fine art collector, right, 
price, mm. fiat price in exchange for the asset is not something you care about very much, right? Only so much as how much you can buy the next one for, right? Like how much is in your bank account that you can then go and get another piece of fine art, right? If you really love art and you love looking at it and you just want it to be in your possession, the fiat price of it does not matter very much, right? If you're a fine art collector, the price, that's why these bidding wars can get to such extremes, right? Because they don't actually yep. care about the price. They just want the habit. I wonder if maybe Cuban was right in terms of how you should view Bitcoin as a piece of fine art that you just want to hold and you just want, you just want more like it rather than, uh, you know, rather than as this speculative asset that we all, you know, we're always checking the price all, you know, every day and whatever. I, I see, I see, like where, better, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I see where you're coming from with that. But even still, Yes, that with the, the real art collectors almost don't care what the fiat money value is worth. They, they it's about the art itself. But even still, there's a point in which some some will want to keep that art just for the aesthetics of it. But you would still think that most of them, even the fine art collectors that are really into it, collect to buy to eventually sell with the idea that it will be worth something more in the future and to be worth something more in the future, there still needs to be somewhat of a base currency. So if you went and bought a Banksy and then, uh, you know, in 10 years time, you're like, well, that's been great, but now I think I want to sell my Banksy and get a Da Vinci, then, you you still don't want your Banksy to have depreciated in value. You want to appreciate so that you have a chance of perhaps buying a Da Vinci or something else of, of equal or higher worth. And so in that sort of a sense, I, I think Bitcoin becomes that underlying value, that underlying currency that, that things get priced in. And so what's really interesting and, and what, what you bring up around, particularly with the art world, is that we are starting to really see at the sort of through bit of last year and particularly into this year, the world of fine art embracing crypto technologies uh, in order to produce fine art. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the artist cause KAWS. And um, so he does, you know, uh, artwork, but sculptures as well, really contemporary modern art. Uh, so he recently did some art, limited edition digital art, that effectively the only way you could see it was through augmented reality. So basically to see his sculptures, he did a limited run, I think of 25, and he's done another limited run of 10 digital sculptures that you can purchase and have exclusive ownership over, um, but you can only see through augmented reality. So we're starting to see the, the, the real fine art world. Like, I mean, for example, one of his sculptures sold for like, you know, a hundred thousand pounds that was like 27 centimeters high. And this digital art piece was, I think 1.8 meters. So you could effectively put this digital art piece in your front yard. It would look like nothing until someone came along with a screen and an augmented reality app. And saw this one of a kind, uh, or at least one of a run of 25 cause sculptures in your front yard. This is the sort of thing that I think we're starting to see uh, come along with crypto technology that a lot of people just don't see. When you, when you look to CNN and NBC and, and, and the FT and all those sorts of mainstream um, 
financial you know, news outlets, all they ever do is talk about the price of Bitcoin, maybe the price of Ethereum or something else. But what they don't see is that things like non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and the ability to create rare and unique pieces of digital content, whether it be art or books or whatever it might be, is a kind of technology that's really starting to be embraced by people in those areas because they understand that you can create something unique in the digital space, have value attached to it, uh, and have that ongoing uniqueness and rarity still attached. And so I think that's important because all these pieces of art uh, that are being used in the NFT world and, and using crypto technology, they are all still priced in something usually like Ethereum or Bitcoin. So there's an underlying value there to them, but it always comes back to a crypto. But using crypto technology, they can make them unique, rare, limited run, all these sorts of things. So I think it's a you know, it's, it's, a, it's the sorts of questions that we should ask about. Is it, you know, should we look at it like, you know, a, a piece of art? Should we look at it like property? Should we look at it like stocks? Should we look at it like currency? Uh, and then also appreciate the bigger technology picture that's starting to play out as well. When you say um, well, the, the connection with cause there, so is that because it was uh, effectively the, the piece of art were cryptographic, like you could only get possession of it? if you had uh, like access to the file as it were, and it was cryptographically secured yeah. or did yeah. he actually sell it for Bitcoin or anything? Um, I think they sold them. So his, there's sort of, he's kind of got what he did was one part of it. And what I'm saying is that you can, there have been others that have used NFTs to non-fungible tokens to, to create unique pieces of art. And I think there's, right. we're starting to see these two, ends of the of the i guess divide combine and converge and intersect so his i think ended up selling like the the 25 the run of 25 of those sculptures i think they sold for ten thousand dollars each um and I've, I've i've seen other nft so like there was a um there was a drawing by the guy that that made or that that um does rick and morty uh, and he sold his drawing. It's a digital drawing, but he sold it as an NFT and it sold for over a hundred thousand dollars. And I, I'm not right. sure if they paid in, they might've paid in Ethereum, I think for that one. Um, but the point is, is that you can, so you can create, and the other thing is as well, is that it's, it's a, cause it's logged on a blockchain. The provenance is guaranteed. So yeah, you right. can always know that something is the original and even if it is copied, you can easily just find out if it's a copy rather than wondering and like, you know, how great art forgery is, you know, art forgery is a genuine business for some people. Um, but within, in using crypto technology and blockchain technology, you can quite quickly see if something's a fake or a, a original piece. Could I ask a few questions here? Yeah, go for it. Because I, you know, it's a great opportunity to talk to you two guys, and I do have a ton. I mean, Sam, your your sort of vision for cryptocurrency and your point about the way we value it in fiat currencies is really interesting, and it's a great thought experiment actually, just mm. to sit here and imagine it the other way around, like dollars valued in crypto, which is I know yeah. I know something you do. Um, it sounds almost like a sort of Tower of Babel kind of utopia, where instead of there being all these different currencies and all the related problems the world operates on on one currency so do you you know i'm going to run through i've got four questions i'm really sorry the first one is sam do you imagine that a financial world with bitcoin that has no fiat currencies to translate to translate into or can it exist alongside um and the follow-up is 
what are you do if government bans it? Because if there are still fiat currencies, there are still governments. And, and I suppose I buy into pretty, pretty much everything. Um, except for this idea that, you know, in, 19, in the 30s when Britain banned gold, we made it treasonous to transact during gold. And so they would kill you. And like, yep, I'm all for it, but I'm not going to die for the coin. That's I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's a valid, it's a valid point. And and look, I'm, and that's why I talk about it in such a long term time frame kind of thing because I don't think that we'll see that anytime soon. I don't, I don't think it's possible that you can, you can't flick the switch and turn off fiat money. You can't flick a switch and turn off central banks from creating, uh, creating money and 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 treasuries for circulating money it just it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't happen and as you say they push back because it's you know one of the greatest um weapons that any nation has has nothing to do with the military it's their economic might uh and their ability to use and manipulate their currency for me i regardless of how many trillions the u.s spends on uh their military the most powerful thing they have or have had at least for probably the last hundred years is the u.s dollar um, and that continues to be their most powerful weapon. So they don't want to just hand that over to a bunch of anonymous um, libertarians and, 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 anarch- and anarchists, um, which, and but at the same the time, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But at the same time, you've, I think we also need to appreciate that there's an element of competition in it as well. So f- a lot of smaller nations, yeah, whether they be in the Pacific, parts of Africa that don't necessarily have that kind of financial or economic clout, do see some of the opportunities in cryptocurrency as a way to lift uh, the their economic value. Um, and I think that we'll, and even, you know, like there's, I think we'll start to see governments getting more involved in uh, mining and accessing cryptocurrencies uh, as a way to bolster their own uh, economic security as well. So I think we are going to live through what is effectively the start of it all. Um, our, probably our grandkids will live through the really tumultuous times of, of the, the push and the pull between government and, and people when it comes to, to what money is, whether it's fiat money or crypto money. Uh, and then maybe their grandkids you know, so I'm talking a number of generations down the track could possibly end up with a situation where we do have a base universal currency that is something like Bitcoin. Interesting. Um, now, some, you know, a few more follow-up questions, if I may, because I'd say it's such a good opportunity. Um, a lot of people in, in mainstream financial media would look at Bubble and have a, a million times they've called this a Bubble. Um, and when I was listening to you talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens, I've never heard this before, but what you're talking about was so fascinating. I was thinking, wow, there's a whole world in there that I have no concept of and that I could blithely dismiss as a bubble if I didn't know anything about it. And I think, um, you know, it resonated with me because I, I encounter similar things with the energy transition, right? Because we've got stocks going up really quickly um, and we're as aware of that as anyone else, but everyone calls it a bubble. and one of the points I always come back to is 12 months ago, if you'd asked me, we'd have said that every single one of those things was incredibly undervalued. Mm. Um, and I, I've, I've started to use the Bitcoin comparison a little bit, say this is a 30-year trend and this is the first or maybe the second like big burst of excitement. But 
you know, the way Bitcoin has, has operated has been that these bursts of excitement have been followed five or 10 years down the line or, you know, four or seven, um, just by much higher base prices. Um, and I suppose the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, actually, it's been maybe a month and a half, I've been trying to think about the, the sort of the intellectual rationale about people on the inside of a bubble and on the outside of a bubble um, and the way in which people dismiss things very easily um but when you're on the inside things feel very different and and do you do you have sort of similar feelings so when you're on the inside of the entire crypto world and you're so far beyond what i could even you know imagine understanding but just when people reject it do you feel that there's they're, they're sort of trying to stand back and sound clever they're trying to sort of say oh you know i'm too smart for this you know classic bubble crap it's South Sea, it's tulips all over again. And they're sort of trying to sound clever, but actually the clever thing to do would be to throw your weight behind understanding and understanding NFTs and the other tokens and all these visions for crypto that you have. Yeah, I, I think it's it, education's the key. Just understanding. It's like, I don't know everything about the energy transition. Um, you know, I don't know everything about, I don't know everything about everything. No one does. And I think people just need to retain an open mind uh, as to some of these things. It's like, there are bubble elements to cryptocurrency when you talk about it in fiat money. When you start to drop that idea, um, no, the, the, the bubble argument just disappears. <laughs> it's it's non-relevant. So it, it perspective and understanding perspective is, you know, that's a really big part of it, I think, as well. Well, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, from there, Kit, in terms of, I, I'm, I'm very interested in your views of it because you, this is something you have been peripherally aware of for a while and you've gotten more inter in, interested in it recently. Um, and, you know, there are comparisons with, you know, previous, uh, people make lots of, um, you know, previous bubbles, things like that. I'm, I, you know, with, well, what do you make of the rise? So the rise in energy stocks that you've seen this year, is that something... Yeah, like, because there's no, there's nothing wrong with something becoming, people getting really excited about it and bidding something up to, to more than you think it's worth. Like, that's not like a, that's not a problem in that, you know, this is just people getting overexcited about something. I mean, what, how, how is it that you view it, Kit? Because like, are you conflicted in between thinking, am I just not bullish enough or are these people uh, just being overly bullish, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really hard one. I think, one of the ways in which I've been sort of torn apart as an exaggeration, but pulled in different directions this year is that I, I very much came up into in the investing world from a value perspective, from contrarianism, from buying cigar butts from Warren Buffett and the rest of it. Um, <laughs> and in this incredible job where I'm researching the smallest clean tech stocks that you can imagine. They've had the most incredible year and had stocks up 800%, 1400%, you know, gains that I didn't really, I, I'd never seen, experienced, thought of. Um, and what I realized that there are two logics that, that sort of made sense. And then I've started to really resent the way in which people just dismiss it. And I think one of the things that's really made me think very deeply about is investing during mania. actually. So I always thought, you know, you read the history books, you look at 1929 and 2008 and you think, you know, you've just got to be counter cyclical. It's classic. You know, it all happens in an instant. In a history book, things happen very quickly, right? But the, the lived experience of people in the past is much slower than what we think it is. 
Uh, and so for me, you know, two years ago, I was saying all stocks were overvalued and that was super simplistic uh, and, and wrong. Um, and just watching these things, you know, let's say 18 months of energy transition stocks going from, in, in my opinion, way underappreciated to potentially overappreciated in the short term has been actually, you do have to make hay while the sun shines a little bit. Um, in the same time, when people cry bubble, that George Soros quote comes back to me of when he, when he sees a bubble, he buys it. Because it's a, you know, it's a once in a decade or once in a generation opportunity to make money. And some of the money that has been made in green energy stocks, which I've been very much on the front line of and have been very lucky to, to hear about people doing very well. And it brings me a lot of joy and happiness to, to think of, you know, us having helped people to, you know, fund mortgages or homes or camper vans or holidays or retirement or whatever it is. Not more camper um, vans, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it, that's why I asked you the question a little bit, Sam, is parts of you must think these people who just say, I'm staying out of this, this is a bubble, they're, they're giving up, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to sound clever, but they're actually giving up an incredible and very rare opportunity to make a lot of money. Um, and, not everyone wants to make money. Short, I know. Not everyone everyone wants to make money. Um, but yeah, then I, I suppose I think um, if you have, if you're an investor, you have a core allocation to various things that you think you probably will never sell. Yeah. Um, and those grow over time. Um, so perhaps it would be time for some trimming. So for example, in our service, we've done some selling of some winners um, and we'll be looking to buy very aggressively if there is a severe downturn because this is a 20, 20, 30 year trend and we've spent two years identifying the best companies within it. Um, so any, any serious correction is a massive opportunity in a trend this long. It's, you know, slightly different, I guess, if you think it's a two year trend that's run its course, I don't know how that would be, but um, yeah. So there's a sort of, it's a weird discomfort and comfort at the same time, which is that maybe things are overbought, but at the same time, if they sell off, great. We're, we're diving in yeah i that's it's a very interesting perspective to take i you know the idea of what it would be like to live through a bubble whether or not we're living through a bubble now the sort of uh, comparison between where we were historically and now i think you make a great point regarding uh you know us looking back from you know looking back to the 1920s and the manner in which people were living then and you know how how that that you know it took a very long period of time before it actually crashed and how people just got really used to this idea that stocks just went up all the time and then you think of now and it's like well you know stocks just keep going up you know maybe i'm just completely wrong you know maybe this stuff isn't overvalued at all and i, I was just wrong the whole time it is a uh, it is quite a quandary but kit i'm afraid uh, we have we have reached the end of our of our time for today's triple b podcast but you are the man of the hour can you give us your rating for your second beer the maximator or maximator well, God damn it. I think I, I think I might have messed up with the first. I think I gave the first rating. I wanted to put it in the B category because I don't really like lager. But as lager goes, I really enjoyed this one um, because I think it was it was light, but it was heavy on flavor. It was pretty hoppy. And I was like, this is OK. Um, but now I feel reluctant to give something. I, I, you know, I prefer the Maximator, the Maximator, um, which means oh, you've, you've set, a, you've set too high a bar. That's your problem. I've set too high a bar, so let's let's consider my recommendations, my ratings to be in a vacuum from your own uh, rating <laughs> system. So when I give this a double B, you can forgive me and realise that all I'm saying is that I preferred yeah. 
We're definitely <laughs> gonna put ast- we're gonna definitely put asterisks next to your <laughs> recommendations. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I apologise and forgive at the same time. Um, yeah, little beers, yes. triple A, and Maximator is double A. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, but this seriously, this is this is fine good stuff. Yeah, it's better. You know, all pricing is relative. We can't forget that. Um, well, what do you so, what do you think? What do you think? No, look, when the when the yield on lager is half a percent. Um, the risk premium on a seven and a half percent Augustina is um, is pretty low. So basically, double B plus. <laughs> All right, okay. Sam. What, what, how would you rate your second beer? Uh, not as good. Nowhere near as good as the first, but still very enjoyable. Fresh blood orange. I love a good blood orange uh, in my gin, in my beer, in my Negronis. I'll take it even just a straight out blood orange out of the peel uh not not as good still enjoyable i think i'd give this a b minus for my ratings on the orange rainbow well a b minus is still still very good indeed still very good um, yeah, i mean i i yeah i think yeah i think for the night shift with uh, we've had the we've had the day shift now we're on the night shift um well, it's actually a very decent black ipa uh, so I think I'm actually going to give this the same. I think I'm also going to give this a single solitary B. No pluses or minuses, but just a B, which is a good beer. Um, yeah, day shift, night shift, night shift. Uh, there is actually another beer by Fierce uh, called Late Shift, which I which I I'll acquire maybe for maybe for our next episode. But uh, that this is uh, this does conclude the end of episode thirty. You know, this is the 30. first one we've had a guest yeah. on. Kit, uh, you know, it's been great Thanks, having Kit. you on. I'm sure we'll have yeah. you on again at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that does conclude this 30th episode. Uh, so if you are listening to this, uh, I hope this has been relatively enjoyable. Do give us a follow on Twitter at Booze Booms Busts if you're interested in, uh, in hearing more from us. Uh, and in the meantime, until next time, I uh, hope you have a good weekend and we'll see you in the next one.